Um, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the, the truism, be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. Uh, there's a, a story that illustrates that well. That's famous, inspired a lot of movies and stuff. It's the story of the monkey paw. Uh, how the story goes is that there's this normal, average, happy, suburban couple in, uh, in England. And uh, they are without much need or debts in their life. They're, they're happy. They live in a good place. They've got a, a son whom they have a great relationship with. They're happy. And uh, one night... They have an old friend come by, Sergeant Morris. Uh, they hadn't seen him in years because he had been out on a, uh, a deployment in India. And uh, he's at dinner, and in the course of dinner, he tells them that while he was in India, he came across this, uh, this mummified monkey hand, monkey paw, that had had some dark magic placed on it. And so now this monkey paw, if you possessed it, you had three wishes, And these wishes would be granted to you, but with the condition that they would be granted in the worst way possible. So as to teach you to not be so presumptuous as to make wishes. So Sergeant Morris, he said he made his wishes and it, you know, was horrible. It was terrible. So he says he hates the monkey paw, he throws it in the fire, and he leaves. And uh, Mr. White, realizing this might... uh, bring a lot of you know, riches, good things to his life. He goes and grabs the monkey paw. Not certain that he's going to use it, but just in case, right? And so he's had it, and he and his wife, Mrs. White, they go back and forth. Should we use it? And the main thing, is, again, is that they don't really need anything. They're not in a terrible situation in life. They're well-fed, sheltered, everything's good. They think, you know what, though? We haven't paid off our house fully. We're uh, 200 pounds short of, of finally owning our house completely. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just get that 200 pounds right now? So they think about it, they go back and forth. What's the danger that could come from that? It's just 200 pounds. And finally, Mr. White, he makes the wish. He, he asks for that money. Uh, short time thereafter, there's a knock at the door. And I do want to just pause right there, because if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, but we're going to look here at 2 and 3, Genesis 2 and 3 has been, first of all, it set up this wonderful situation. Man was created, and marriage was created. And then man fell, and we saw a little bit of the consequences of man's sin. God confronted them. Uh, he, He cursed the ground, and he cursed the serpent. But we haven't seen the consequences of Adam's wish yet. Adam's wish to be above the law, to no longer be under God's reign, We have yet to see the real-world consequences of it. And so as we enter Genesis 4, that's the feeling we have. The same in the story. It's this feeling of anticipation and dread. Adam has done this terrible thing. He has crossed a line which he cannot go back from, and we're anticipating what are the consequences going to be. And it could be from their perspective, Adam and Eve's perspective, things might turn out just okay. Yes, God cursed uh, the ground and he cursed the serpent, but he also gave them a promise. You guys know Genesis 3.15. God told the serpent that one of the offspring of Eve would crush the serpent. So it might have been totally reasonable for Adam and Eve to expect that, yeah, they had this bad thing happen, they sinned, God confronted them, but you know what? They're just going to have a kid now, the kid will defeat Satan, and everything's going to be okay. 
We don't know what this world is going to be like that they made. Again, I want to emphasize the connection, however, between chapter 4, a story you're all familiar with, Cain and Abel, and though chapter 3, the fall. We often separate them, but as Moses is writing this, he writes it as one unit. The book of Genesis is broken down into these units in which he starts a section by saying, these are the generations of. So the first one was basically chapter 1, creation. Some other ones are the the generations of Abraham and the the generations of Joseph. The section we're in right here, you can see it starts in chapter 2, verse 4. And it goes, again, from creation. God, it focuses in on the two high points of God's creation, the creation of human life and accompanying that, the creation of marriage and relationship. And that section, that high point of creation, ends with this beautiful statement. And in verse 25 of chapter 2, that the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. But then, of course, we find out that there's a tree in this garden that God said not to eat of. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, the serpent tells the woman that, no, it probably is in your best interest if you actually eat of that tree, despite what God said. And it's important that we understand what this tree is. The, the, the tree itself tells us what Adam and Eve's sin was in taking of that. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What that means to know good and evil is to designate something as good and designate something as evil. To recognize good and recognize evil. The way God created it was that it would be his prerogative alone to say that this thing is good and this thing is evil. This is the correct action. This is the incorrect action. That is, God was going to be the ultimate ruler. He would say this is the right thing to do, and Adam and Eve would unhesitatingly do that thing. They were made as kings, but not completely autonomous kings, kings under the great king. But what the serpent told Adam and Eve was this setup actually is not really to your favor. You're never going to be totally happy and satisfied and everything until you can make all of your decisions truly on your own, until you're totally autonomous. So that no longer do you have to ask God, is this good or is this bad? But you'll just be able to decide for yourself, this is good for me or this is bad for me. And so that's what Adam and Eve do. They eat of the tree and by doing that they tell God, yeah, thank you very much for offering to tell us what to do. But for now on, we are going to be in charge. We'll decide for ourselves what the right thing is and what the wrong thing is. And so they eat of the fruit of the tree And they get an immediate consequence. Immediately, that prior special relationship they had where they were naked and not ashamed, that is immediately fractured. They eat of the apple, and immediately they recognize that each other are naked. And I'll come back to the significance of that later. But yes, then God curses the serpent. He curses the ground. Notably, he does not curse man and woman. Yes, he makes their life harder, but it does not say they are cursed. And then as an act of mercy to them in order to keep them from remaining eternally in this terrible state of uh, self-deceived autonomy, God says, I'm going to kick you out of the garden so you can't eat of the tree of life. And they go out east of Eden. And now the question, again, is what is this world going to be like? What are the consequences of his actions? When Adam ate of the tree, what did he think was the worst case scenario? I don't know. Maybe it was that he would die. 
And that's what God had said. The day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Maybe that's what Adam thinks. That's probably the worst thing that's going to happen to me is I'll die. Indeed, as we go into chapter 4, if we never read it before, we might think that's a, a perfectly reasonable thing to expect, that maybe Adam's out tilling the ground one day and he dies. Going back to our story of the monkey paw, maybe that's the worst thing that Mr. White thought as well. You know, this is going to answer it, my wish in a bad way. I don't know what's the worst thing that could happen. I could die. Mr. White, when he goes and, and answers the door, uh, it's a police officer, and he says, sorry, sir, I regret to tell you, but your son today, when he was working at the factory, he suffered a terrible accident. And uh, though the, the company accepts no responsibility for his death, here is a goodwill payment of 200 pounds, just the money he had asked for. Maybe he thought the worst thing that could happen was that he'd die. Uh, he got a fate worse than death. Maybe Adam thought the worst thing that would happen to him is that he'd die. He got a fate much, much worse than that. So let's read then Genesis chapter 4. Let's see this world that Adam has made. What's life like when we tell God we don't need him to tell us what to do anymore? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushalel, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. 
And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, I I listened to a a book one time. uh, It's called Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets. And what the book was was a series of vignettes about people who had lived at the end of the Soviet Union and then had lived after the Soviet Union fell, and they were comparing their lives. And I don't know if you're aware, but at the the end of the Soviet Union, uh, in many places it was hell on earth, kind of. It was anarchy, no rules, people took houses, killed, whatever. These people didn't believe in God, and then the government wasn't that involved in normal civic things. So it was a terrible place to live. And uh, it's always stuck out to me what this one woman said, uh, that she had had a child in one of these God-forsaken towns. And she said that, when I had my child, all I'd hoped was that he wouldn't be murdered and that he wouldn't be a murderer. I thought, that, that's a good description of the worst things that could happen to a person. That's a good description of what makes life so terrible here east of Eden. For you, those are the two worst things that could happen to you. A heinous thing could be done to you, or you could do a heinous thing to somebody else. For your loved ones, that's the worst thing that could happen to them. A heinous thing is done to them, or they do a heinous thing to somebody else. That's what makes this world so miserable, is that we sin and we are sinned against. And it's, of course, kind of an ironic suffering we have, that the things we complain to God about are the same things we do to others. But that's what we see here in Genesis 4. We see the, the murderer and the murdered. Adam has both of those worst things happen to him. He might have thought that his son would be the offspring who would crush the serpent. No, instead his son acted like Satan and crushed his other son, leaving him hopeless, thinking that maybe there's not going to be anybody who's going to crush the serpent after all, because my children ruined it. And of course, this was all Adam's fault. He's the one who said, I don't want to live with rules. And now he sees what life is like when there are no rules. So, In the passage, what we are going to do, yes, we're going to try and understand this world that we continue to live in. And we're going to look at the parts that do make it a difficult place to live. And so by that, we're going to first look at the murderer, Cain. Then we will look at at the murdered one, Abel. And and I, I do want to point out, as you saw, this is not the cheeriest passage in the Bible. It's a downer. It's, It's telling us this is what it means that you guys are sinners. This is what it means to reject God's laws. And so part of this sermon is going to be somber and sad as we look at just what it means for us to be sinners and, and what that means for all the victims, innocent victims of the world who suffer at the hands of other sinners. But note that as we look through this, you know, we're okay looking at reality and all of its grimness because we have hope. If you don't have any hope, then yeah, ignore reality. There's no point in being sad. But we're able to look at the sadness and darkness of the world because we know ultimately all the problems that we see here in Genesis 4 are resolved in our Lord and Savior. And so we have that hope continually even as we look in the darkness of this. And furthermore, as this passage lays out the darkness of our world, it also continues to highlight how God is still gracious and faithful even as we reap what we sowed. He is still good to us. And that will will shine forth. 
And so first of all, yes, let's look at Cain the murderer. And yes, Cain's sin is fatricide. It is murder. But it is also, most of all, it's sin. And most of us haven't killed anybody, probably none of us. But we all sin in a manner like Cain. We all hate our brothers. We all despise God's rules. And so by looking at Cain, we will see what we ourselves are as sinners. And we're going to look at three aspects of sin that are seen in Cain. And again, this is stark, it's somber, it's depressing. But be encouraged to look at these things and see it as, uh, as tools to use in your own fight against sin. You're always going to be at a disadvantage against sin if you underestimate it, if you don't understand it. No, by coming to really understand what it means to be a sinner, we are much better equipped to fight it in our own lives. So let's look then here closely at the text. And uh, we'll go ahead and and begin in verse 2, and I'll I'll somewhat explain this. Well, look at verse 1. This is what I mentioned before. Adam and Eve think that their son probably is the one who's going to crush the serpent. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. God gave me this child. Now that's good that Adam and Eve view it that way. Verse 2, it says that Cain and Abel have different occupations. Abel is a, a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. It says that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And then the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And why is that? Why does God like Abel's offering, and why does he not like Cain's offering? Uh, It's not because God is a a fan of livestock and he doesn't like fruit. Uh, it's, It's clear in the text what's the difference. It's that for Cain, he just brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. He, he brings some of his stuff to God. Abel, on the other hand, he, he brings the firstborn, and he brings the fat portions. That's the very best of his flock. Cain gives God something. Abel gives God his very best. It, Cain is more interested in, a, in appeasing God than pleasing him. Where Abel, he has had faith to know that it is better to please God. That you, if you seek Him and honor Him, He will reward you. Uh, and, and so that, that, that's what Abel does. He gives the best he has to offer, and that is a fragrant offering to God. Again, not because he likes the product that he gets from Abel, but in Abel's desire to give God his best, he demonstrates a heart that loves God, and that's what God honors. And in Cain, meanwhile, he sees a heart that is somewhat apathetic towards God. You know, okay, I'll give you the stuff I want, but then leave me alone. And that's what he dishonors in Cain. And so Cain gets angry. He gets upset that God doesn't like his sacrifice. And so the Lord then says to Cain, though, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? You know, that this, this line of questioning is, is somewhat similar to things we experience all the time. You know, it it makes perfect sense if you just give it a concrete example. So say you find a teenager has been uh, getting drunk continuously. You come to them and you confront them and they get really upset at you. And you come and you tell them, hey, hey, there's no need to get upset. What you did was wrong. But hey, it's okay. Just don't do it in the future. And everything's going to be just fine. You can put this behind you. But be warned, if you continue in this, it will ruin your life. 
Same thing. You, you find that the teenager has been using pornography and you say, hey, hey, don't get so upset. Just don't do it again in the future and everything's going to be okay. But know that if you don't turn away from it, it'll ruin your life. That's what God is saying to Cain. Hey, you did wrong, but it's no problem. Just, just take personal responsibility. Do better next time and you'll be accepted. I don't have a vendetta against you. And furthermore, it has nothing to do with Abel. It's not a zero-sum game. He does his offering. That's completely separate than yours. Just do better, and you'll be accepted. It's that simple. But we need to look closely to see why does God, you know, he says that, that the sin is going to get out of hand. And we know that. Again, from those examples, we all know that if you have a little sin, it just grows and grows and grows till it's the master of you, and it destroys your life. And God phrases it this way. He, he describes sin as an animal that is going to overpower you and dominate you. Indeed, that's the first point that we learn about sin, is that sin is dominating. God is telling Cain, watch out. Do not be so naive and arrogant to think that you can do whatever you want and remain in control the whole time. No, it is stronger than you your lawlessness, your sin, and it will dominate you. It's, it's like that, that guy, uh, the grizzly man, who went up and lived with the grizzly bears in Alaska, being so arrogant as to think that he could uh, interact with a bear in such a way as it wouldn't eat him. He eventually was eaten along with his girlfriend. Naive and arrogance, underestimating the power of the beast. That's what God is saying to Cain. Do not underestimate your sin. It will destroy you. You are not strong enough to rule, well, yeah, unless you do rule over it. If you give it a little bit, it will dominate you. You need to be in charge. You need to subjugate it. You need to apply rules. That's clear enough. That's what God's saying. But then this is my question, is why is sin that way? We all know from experience, we can see from what God is saying, that yes, sin does grow and grow and grow until it masters you and you can do nothing and it destroys your life. Why is that? Well, because remember what we learned about sin from Genesis 3. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is saying, I don't want any restraint on me and my decisions. And so guess what happens when you say, I don't want any restraint? Well, there's no restraints. There's nothing now to keep you from doing whatever. You threw off the thing that was going to stop you from doing terrible things. There's no barriers left. If you say, I'm going to do whatever I want, you're going to be surprised to find out just what whatever means. I imagine it this way, that life is a, a road in the dark. And on this road, though, there are, there are lamps that shine on the road, and on each side are fences. And as long as you walk in this road, everything's safe. You can see everything. It's safe ground. There are dangers out in the darkness outside of the road. But you are safe from those dangers as long as you are inside the fence. The thing is, is that if you step on the other side of the fence, there's now nothing between you and all the dangers out there. There was only one barrier between you, and once you've gone over it, there's nothing left to stop you from whatever, cliffs, animals, whatever is out there in that darkness, whatever danger that is. If you've gone over the fence, there's nothing left to stop you. If you have committed in your heart to disregard God's rules, there's nothing left 
to stop you from becoming a monster and doing the very worst things. There's only one restraint, that's God's laws. And if you've disregarded that, there's now no stopping what you can become. And so the the situation that we find here with Cain is Cain has stepped just on the other side of the fence. And there's still some light from the lamps that kind of reach that little part right next to the fence. And God is telling Cain, hey, you're on the wrong side of the fence. But you know what? It's okay. Just come back to the other side and everything's good. You'll be accepted. But if you stay over there, if you continue to wander around over there, watch out. You are going to be destroyed. You can't handle everything that's out there. I gave you one protection, and you've ignored it. So that's the first thing. Sin is dominating. You cannot control it. It's a wild animal. It is, uh, to put it in terms we're familiar with, it's putting a fire outside of a fire pit uh, in a Southern California wilderness in September. You're not strong enough to contain that. It will grow and grow And you will ask yourself one day, how did I become this? When did I make this decision (laughs) to become a monster? It started with a very small thing, and it grows and grows. On this road through the darkness in life, what we often tell ourselves is that the reason we're going to go on the other side of the fence is because there's something we need that's just on the other side. I'm just going to hop over, I'm going to grab that thing I need, and then I'm going to go right back on the other side. Everything's okay. No, there's no danger of me getting lost out in the darkness because I just need to get that one thing, and then I'll be back over. But see, this is the important thing to understand about sin. This is point two, is that sin is transgressive. And yes, that's obvious. Yes, transgression's a, a synonym for sin. Thanks for that. But what I mean by that is sin is innately transgressive. It is transgressive for the sake of being transgressive. The reason that we go on the other side of the fence is not because there's something that we need right on the other side, but it's because on the road, we, like Adam and Eve, say, what are with these stupid fences? And who put them here? Who told me I have to walk on this road? Why don't they trust me? I think I can wander wherever I want, and I'm going to be just fine. In fact, I'm never going to be happy as long as I have to stay on this dumb road. So why do you... And and, and you go... and, and. Who has the nerve to tell me I need to stay on this road? And so you go on the other side of the fence. What to say? These fences can't contain me. I'm bigger than this. I don't have to stay in the fence. That's why we sin. It's innately transgressive. We, again, we're trying to be gods. We're trying to be autonomous. And so because of that, well, we never quite do become autonomous. Frustratingly enough, God always remains in charge, and we're never really completely powerful. And so therefore, we always have to remind God that he's not really in control. Remember, we told him we're not going to listen to his rules. And so therefore, what we end up doing is we break rules. We hop the fence not to get anything, but simply to, break the, to go over the fence, to tell ourselves that the fence doesn't rule us, that we're bigger than the fence, that we're bigger than God. We don't need him. Uh, A famous illustration of this is in Augustine's Confessions. He reflects on a rather small incident when he was a teenager. He said that he and his friends, one day they snuck into their neighbor's yard and they stole some pears from a tree that their neighbor had. And he said, now the, the strange thing about this was that these pears didn't even look appetizing. They were ugly and small, and so we stole them, but we didn't even eat them again. We had much better pears at home, so we just took the pears and we threw it to the pigs. 
I did, he said, I didn't, I didn't steal the pears because I wanted the pears. I stole the pears because I wanted to steal. I wanted to transgress. I wanted to feel that, that liberation of being able to violate somebody else's property and they not be able to do anything about that. And this isn't just guessing. This is precisely what Paul says in Romans 7, if you want to turn there briefly. Paul is rhetorically asking the question, is the law a bad thing? And in so doing, look at verse 7, we learn this very truth about sin, that we break the law for the sole point of breaking the law. So Romans 7, verse 7, what shall then we say, that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life to me proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. This is the, uh, the power of suggestion. Paul's living his life, and God tells him, don't covet. And he says, oh yeah? You say, I can't covet? Watch me. I'm going to covet in a thousand different ways. Remember, God, I'm in charge, not you. You don't tell me what to do. And so every time he tells us to do something, well, we break it, because we constantly need to remind him and everybody else that we are above all of his rules. And this is why there is nothing so twisted and self-destructive that humans don't partake in it. Really nothing. And why is that? Because there's always something else to do to remind everybody, no, remember, we are gods. We are autonomous. There's no fences that keep us in. Uh, This, by the way, I think provides a helpful perspective on why people are transgender. They, They literally gain nothing. They mutilate themselves, take all these chemicals, spend all this money. It's a terrible hassle why would you do this to yourself? Well, what a fundamental reminder to God that he does not rule over you. Oh, God, you say I'm a woman? Watch this. I don't even have to be a woman. You can't even constrain me with my biology. I'm truly a God. That's what we need to know about sin. It's intentionally transgressive, and this is what we see in Cain. Why does he kill Abel? It's not jealousy. Jealousy is if someone else has something, you know, say my neighbor has a car that I really like and I want the car, and so I go and assault him so I can take the car. That's jealousy. Cain gains nothing from killing Abel. Abel really has nothing to do with what Cain is and his problems with God. Abel's just living his life. He goes and does a good sacrifice, and that's it. He never bothers Cain. And furthermore, this, this is not sibling rivalry either. God didn't give them a competition and say, hey, who can give me the better sacrifice? No, it's not a zero-sum game. Both of them can give good sacrifices. Both of them can give bad sacrifices. Neither sacrifice affects the other one. God tells Cain, hey, you did bad. It's okay, just do good next time. It's that simple. If that's what Cain wanted was acceptance before God, then again, Abel has nothing to do with it. Just do well the next time. But that's not why Cain kills Abel. He kills him out of hatred. That's what 1 John says. 
Cain hated his brother because his brother's deeds were righteous and his own were not. Cain hates Abel because Abel is a reminder to him of how much of a failure he is. That he can't control everything, but no, there is this standard that God has imposed on them that they have to do well at. Cain's problem is really with God, of course. He's the one whom he has a conflict with. God's the one who says, I don't like your sacrifice. The problem is Cain, of course, can't inflict any pain on God directly. So then he takes it out on Abel. By killing Abel, Cain has a brief moment when he says, look, God, you say you have no regard for my sacrifice? Well, guess what? I have no regard for your whole sacrificial system. I have no regard for you and your rules and my stupid brother. I'm going to do what I want, okay? He gains nothing. If he cared about being accepted with God, well, he just made his situation so much worse. Sin is self-destructive. It's transgressive for its own sake. Cain has gained nothing except a fleeting moment of feeling like a god. That was the second thing. The third thing that we need to learn about sin here from Cain is that it's its own punishment. Throughout Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, man sins against God. And God, he absolutely does actively punish sin. But here in Genesis 3 and 4, he doesn't really that much. Yeah, he curses the ground, he curses the serpent. He makes things more difficult for Adam and Eve. And eventually he's going to punish Cain. But for the most part, he just kind of lets them reap what they sow. Genesis 4 is so terrible because it's God saying, all right, this is what a world looks like in which there are no rules. You happy, Adam? You didn't want to have to listen to me. Well, how do you like it when your son doesn't have to listen to me either? Now you've lost the two things you love the most. They're merely reaping what they sowed. This is the same with, with Cain. It, it, see the, the irony of his complaint. Did, did you catch that? God tells him, hey, you're a murderer. You can't be with your family anymore. No, you're going to be punished. You're going to have to go wander the earth now. And you get, Did you catch Cain's complaint? God, somebody's going to kill me. It's, it's, like, uh, it's like the guy who assaulted somebody else being sentenced to prison and going, oh, someone might beat me up in there. You can't put me in prison. There are criminals in there. Indeed. Uh, tangentially, it's the same as people who say, oh, I, I don't like the church. There's too many sinners in there. Yes, indeed. This is the, the uh, audacity an irony of Cain's complaint is that he just killed his brother. He just disregarded God's uh, sanctity of human life. And he says, wait, wait, God, but someone's going to kill me now. If you just let me go free out there, people are going to realize that I'm a murderer and that I'm an easy victim and someone could take my life. That's not fair. <laughs> well, it's the very definition of fair. That's reaping what you sowed. God told him, if you engage in this lawless behavior, watch as lawlessness will destroy your life and will own you like a wild animal. And now he's starting to feel that, and he's going and complaining to God, saying this is too much. And in this extremely audacious, hypocritical request to God that he not be murdered just like he murdered his brother, God is gracious to him, actually. God is gracious to him in his lawlessness by making another law. He protects him by saying, okay, the, next, the person that kills you, I will avenge sevenfold. 
And in that way, he is gracious to Cain. In that way, he restrains the consequences of Cain's sin. Actually, in Genesis 3 and 4, God much more lessens the innate consequences of what humanity has done more than he adds extra problems. And Moses makes that connection directly because uh, the same phrase that is used here in chapter 4, verse uh, 15, where it says the Lord put a mark on Cain, or it's the Lord made a mark on Cain, it's the same phrase as Genesis chapter 3, verses um, uh, verse 21, where it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See, that, that was the innate consequence, the reaping and sowing uh, of Adam and Eve was before they had this perfect relationship with each other where they could be completely vulnerable and yet okay. And immediately when they sin, though, that is ruptured. Why? For, for the same reason that in a band of thieves, everybody has to be very protective of their items. Because you recognize that all your, your buddies, they have no overriding principle about respect for private property. No, I guess the only reason they're not stealing your stuff right now is because it's inconvenient. That they're not stealing from you is merely incidental. There's no higher principle. And at the moment that Adam and Eve sin, they both make that conclusion. Wait. From Eve's perspective, if Adam was willing to disregard the one command God gave, how do I know he's not going to do something terrible to me? How do I know he's not going to abuse me? We didn't make some kind of pact. And being then insecure in the presence of Adam, she now really senses her vulnerabilities. And vice versa as well. Adam feels the same way. And furthermore, after breaking God's law, they come to find that they, have, they don't have anything to control themselves now. Maybe they both felt for the first time urges that they never thought that they would have to abuse the other person. And they're afraid of each other. Now they're very aware of their vulnerability. And that severs their relationship. That they, they are merely reaping what they sowed. But what does God do? He's gracious to them. And he lessens the consequences of their sin. He makes garments for them to cover their nakedness. To lessen that innate distrust and vulnerability that they now have with each other. And it's the same phrase again in Genesis 4. Cain's merely reaping what he sowed. Yeah, if you murder people... You're likely you're going to be murdered. You live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. But God is gracious to him. He doesn't have Cain reap all that he sowed. He lessens it. And you can see there, this is God's graciousness in our world. Yes, this world is a terrible place in which we have disregarded God's rules. But God is very gracious to us, and he gives us all kinds of protection and graces and graces to make this world not the total hell that it could be if we were left to our own devices. He keeps some authority, some rule, some governance, so that you're able to live next to your neighbor who, has, who says that he doesn't even believe in God, that there is no principled reason why they, she shouldn't harm you and abuse you, yet he's kind to you. That is God's grace. And it's with us all around society, and you can't miss that. You also see with Cain, he, he leaves, he goes and wanders. God told him that he had to wander, but Cain again disobeys and he builds a city. But nevertheless, God blesses him. He has many children. 
and his children do great things. They are the, the beginners of the civilized arts. They start cities. They start music. But for all of their good advances, and again, this is the grace of God, uh, sin continues to grow and grow. So that his seventh, Cain's seventh generation, Lamech, is, uh, he's the worst person. He's, uh, he's the first polygamist in history. Uh, he's the first adulterer by those same terms. If that, This is kind of the best verse for wondering, is polygamy condemned in the Bible? Yeah, the first instance is by the very worst guy. And uh, what's happened as well is, remember, chapter 2, I said, started with the detailed description of the creation of the two greatest things, humanity and marriage and the family. And remember, in God's promise to conquer evil, it's through the family, right? It's by have one of Eve's children is going to crush the serpent. And what we see in, in first chapter 3 with that fracturing of the relationship between Adam and Eve, and then chapter 4, it's continually emphasized that Cain kills his brother, his family, and of course by that, he disregards human life. And now you've got Lamech, who's the epitome of the destruction of the family and of the, the disregard for human wife. He takes his two wives, uh, perverting God's design for marriage. And then he sings this song here, and, and this, this song is often called the Song of the Sword. And it's a boast, and it's mocking God, and it's intimidating his wives. He tells them, hey, you guys, listen to me. Uh, some guy insulted me, he wounded me, and I killed him. And you know what? Nothing's going to happen to me. What he does is he uses God's grace to Cain as a license now for him to do whatever he wants. He says, hey, when Cain killed Abel, he wasn't killed. No, instead he got a, a promise that protected him. And Lamech says, well, if that happened to Cain, then, then God's going to avenge me 77-fold. He mocks God. He mocks God's grace. Paul has a good word in, in Galatians 6 about those who mock God. Uh, you could turn there briefly. And this, this is really relevant for us because as Christians whose sin has been forgiven, we can often be tempted to be like Lamech and think there's no consequences for the sins I do because of God's grace. But whenever you are tempted to think that, whenever you're tempted to sin and you think, well, there's not really any repercussions for me doing this sin, remember Galatians 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If you're going to remember anything from the story of Cain, remember that sin is its own punishment. And yes, God does actively condemn people, and he actively disciplines his children. But even apart from that, every time you sin, it's bad for you. And every time you obey, it's good for you. It's that simple. How is that going to be true in terms of good and badness? It's going to work itself out in a thousand different ways. But have that utmost confidence from God's word. You never need to make the calculus, oh, is this going to be better for me or not? No, it's always better to obey God, and it's always worse for you to disobey. Because sin is always self-destructive. Every time you make a decision towards sin, you are creating a habit. You are going farther out into the wilderness. And these habits that you create, they're like chains. And the more you do it, they grow heavier and heavier. 
Till at some point you can think, oh, I'd like to go back to God's rules, but you can't because you've created these indestructible habits that weigh you down and coerce you. No, God is not mocked. No, you cannot get away consequence-free when sinning. You are punished. So that's the murderer. That's Cain. Now, now let's look at Abel, the murdered. Abel is the epitome of the innocent who's slain. Uh, that, that's what Jesus says. He says that uh, all of the blood from righteous Abel to Zechariah is going to be on this generation. He is the archetype of the innocent person who does the right things. He, he believes that God will honor him if he worships him correctly, and so he does that. And what does he get? He's killed. And he, he does nothing. This, he's hardly a character in here, right? All you know is he's a shepherd. He does his good sacrifice. One day he talks to his brother and he's dead. And that's, how, that's exactly how it seems sometimes with the innocent in the world. They do nothing. Maybe they do everything right. And nevertheless, an evil person takes their life. And Abel, therefore, seems the silent and forgotten victim who does not receive his reward, who was naive and foolish to want to please God. But that's not the case. No, it's Moses' design that Abel doesn't say anything. Because you keep wondering, well, this is enough about this terrible guy, Cain. Let's hear from the righteous man, Abel. And you get to verse 8, and you're told that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And at that point, you're wondering, well, what, did, what was said? Could, could we get some insight in this conversation? And in fact, that's such a natural feeling that uh, translators in history have added some content of the conversation because it feels like, well, we need to know what's there. Moses perfect, purposely leaves it out. He wants you in suspense wondering, what's the conversation? And furthermore, does Abel ever say anything? And this is the awesome thing, is that Abel finally does say something. Look at verse uh, 10. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel breaks his silence. And he calls out and God hears him. And in this way even, uh, we'll see in Hebrews 11, Abel survives death. He overcomes death. That's of course the punishment for humanity is death. In this way though, Abel lives on. As Hebrews 11 says, you and I didn't turn there. It says, Abel though he died, yet he still speaks. And that is the comfort that we have as we ourselves are victimized and harmed by others. And more than that, as we think of all of the innocent sufferers around the world, whether the innocent righteous people in Ukraine who may be brothers and sisters and might be killed for no reason, or for all of the countless people around the world who are totally innocent and yet are abused and harmed by others, to the babies in the womb who never even see the light of day and yet are killed, know that their voice is heard. They are not the silent and forgotten. Their voice cries out to God for justice and he hears them. And in that way, they continue to live on and he will enact justice. Look at Hebrews 11 verse 4. In the hall of faith, Abel is the first entry. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though he, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he dies, he still speaks. He 
His influence, his impact goes beyond his death. And of course, as Hebrews 11 says, he has now received the reward from his faith. He was not a fool for worshiping God. No, God is going to give him his reward. That's the hope we have. Every innocent person who lives in faith, by faith in God, will receive the reward. They will never be the fool. They will never end up the ultimate victim. They will overcome as God pleads their case and vindicates them. That's the comfort we have as we look at the murdered in the world, as the abused, the sinned against. God hears them. Going back to to where we started chapter 4, Adam and Eve's perspective. They think that their son is probably going to be the one who crushes the serpent. They receive the exact opposite. They receive a fate worse than death. Their two son, their one son kills their other son, and they lose both. And Adam and Eve might have been lost in some hopelessness. Yeah, we're done. The serpent isn't going to be conquered. But God is gracious. Go, go to the end of, of Genesis chapter 4. After we hear about how terrible Cain's lineage is, Adam knew his wife again. Verse 25, And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. The first time uh, when Eve had Cain, she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. This time she changes it and she says, God has appointed for me another offspring. It's the word for seed from Genesis 3.15. She didn't use that word when she had Cain, but she says it again. She knows the hope of the Messiah, of the one who will conquer uh, Satan, endures. And maybe it's Seth. We know it's not really Seth. But generations and generations and generations from Seth, there will come a man who is the epitome of the innocent victim, who never harms anyone. And yet when he is put up to trial, the crowds choose the murderer, Brabus, instead of him. And why do they kill him? It's the same way, reason Cain killed Abel. They didn't gain anything. No, but his righteousness reminded them of their own sinfulness. And, and in killing Christ, it was humanity's, uh, the culmination of all of our reminders to God that we don't care for his rules and that we're fine without him. No, God, listen, we really don't care about you and your rule. We have no regard for your son. All right, we're going to kill him. Just leave us alone. We are our own bosses. We are our own kings. We don't even have to submit to your son. We kill him. And of course, though, in that, in his death, in this ultimate sin, this ultimate act of violence, well, both of our problems are resolved. The murderers find atonement for their, murdered, for their murders and their sin. And the victims of the world, they find justice Abel's blood that is crying out for justice is satisfied in the death of Christ for all of those who believe in him. Of course, God cannot just ignore Abel's blood's cry for justice. He can't just say, oh, Cain, it's all right. If he did that, it would make it that lawlessness is okay in the world. He has to punish the sin. And yet, in God's great wisdom, he figured out a way to be just and the justifier to solve Cain and Abel's problem at the same time. Because all of us are both Cain and Abel, right? We sin and we're sinned against. The very, we are oppressed by the very sins by which we oppress others. 
And God had figured out a way to both judge our sin and save us at the same time. And that's by the death of Christ. He atones for all of our wickedness, all of the ways that we're like Cain. And he solves our problem of being a victim. He casts out the darkness. And finally, let's turn to Titus chapter 3. For the wonderful news in your life is not just that by Christ's death has he atoned for your transgression like Cain, but he has also made it so that you don't have to be like Cain. I won't get into it, but you know God's, God's words to Cain, if you do well, you'll be accepted. If you do not do well, behold, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You know, that's kind of the point. Well, we can't really rule over it. Well, no one's done it yet. We always become slaves to our sin. We always choose like Cain until the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Look at Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, murderers and murdered. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have, been, who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's the thing. Not only has our sin been done away with in the death of Christ, but we've been given the Holy Spirit so we can live righteously. We do not have to have sin dominate us. We do not have to continue to take uh, part in our self-destructive habits, but by the power of the Spirit, we can live. We can subdue our sin and have fellowship with God, and enjoy His gifts, and overcome the sin of this world. And we will do that. We have hope in Christ, for us and for the whole world. Let me pray. Lord, uh, we do live in a a miserable world often, a very dark place, and, and we see that through Your Word. Please help us look without ignorance at your world and realize, yes, this is what our sin is. This is what it means to be far from you. This is darkness. And for as much as we do that and look at the darkness, Lord, let us look all the more at the light and by looking at the darkness, rejoice in the light more and more that for all of the ways that we've messed up this world, you have dealt with it all and you have given us far more than we could ever ask or hope for. And you have, you have suffered us for us more than we could ever ask. And by that, we will have eternal joy and happiness and we will leave this world behind. We look forward to that to pray that you would give us all the strength through your spirit to conquer sin in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.